With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn. Ann Thompson is out this week, but I have a very exciting substitute in my colleague, David Ehrlich. And David's very um, exciting to have you here right now in particular because, of course, the fall festival season is right around the corner, which means you're basically experiencing it right now by pre-screening as much as you possibly can. How are you holding up? Well, we just started. Uh, you and I just came back from our, our first, or at least my first, uh, big fall pre-screening. And next week is looking like the gauntlet of gauntlets. So there's a lot going on, but this is uh, this is the time of year that, you know, it reminds us why why we do this, why we, we love it. Um, it is sort of Christmas and Hanukkah all wrapped into one, and we don't get another jolt like it until really can. Yeah. It's, yeah. so, it's nice so. to have the... the- the stress and adrenaline of the fall movie season back. If you've been through it before, it felt like its absence was, was notable, you know, when we went through the, the kind of quieter festival season, the pandemic caused. And now it's like, just, we're just dripping in movie buzz. Yeah. I think even, you know, last year was pretty hectic coordinating all the various festivals, which were happening in some capacity at the same time. But I think Toronto going back to a lineup size that more closely resembles their traditional, uh, you know, avalanches of, of films. Um, just that one adjustment up from the 100 or so titles they had during the height of the pandemic has made a real difference in how overwhelming it feels uh, to, to juggle everything that's coming our way. Yeah, and, and the, the narrative is just starting. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff that we're looking at that has buzz, but it's hard to tell what's manufactured, what's going to drop away. And then by, you know, post Toronto, once we have that audience prize in place and so forth, you know, what's going to be the next phase of all of this? And what are the movies we're going to get sick of talking about after six months? And what are the movies we're going to completely forget about after six months? And, and what's kind of the happy medium in there? So it's going to be an interesting period. And we have a couple updates to discuss on the festival side of things from the past week. We've got uh, the near film festival spotlight section which is these are mostly not world premieres but uh they are but they are films that by virtue of being in there that adds something to the conversation we also have the tiff docs which uh are some of which are awards contenders but beyond that are also docs that i think are, are very much worth looking at in terms of just the state of nonfiction in 2022 but before we get into all of that Let's talk about the 90s. And um, we're talking about the 90s because of a very fun project that you somehow shepherded uh, along in the middle of doing all this other stuff that you're talking about. Um, celebrating 90s over the course of this week at IndieWire with a bunch of contributors across our now massive, formidable uh, team of, of writers uh, who contributed uh, to the list of 100 greatest movies of the 90s, lots of other essays and, and other lists and so forth. And we definitely have to dig into this in terms of that top 10 and especially that number one. But before we get to that, can you just talk a little bit about the impetus for this project? Why the 90s and, and, and why now? Yeah, I mean, the 
honest answer <laughs> of why do anything is really just uh, I, I have sort of an August phobia of really confronting the dog days of summer and wanting to keep myself busy, want to keeping, wanting to keep our readers interested, wanting to keep the conversation about movies going while we all wait, you know, in the lull between the fall. Uh, and this felt like a fun way to fill the void. But in the 90s in particular, you know, something that you and I talked about, uh, not on this podcast, earlier in the summer was how this summer movie season um, with its much fewer number of major blockbuster sized movies than most seasons because of the way the pandemic has shaken out would kind of feel like a summer without movies. I mean, Top Gun and Nope were able to disguise that to a certain extent, but the sheer yeah. quantity of movies that were coming out every weekend on a, sort of a multiplex level for sure was much, much, much less than we are accustomed to. And so that I think from the start of the summer movie season sort of put me in a mindset of thinking of my associations with the summer movie season to begin with and where they first formed. And I think for a lot of us who are in this business, a lot of us are sort of elder millennials um, that takes you back to the nineties, which felt like a especially robust time for that kind of movies. And as I dug into it, um, I discovered, you know, I think every every generation feels like a they grew up in some sort of halcyon days for what popular culture was like, and b that they were also simultaneously the last people at the party um, to experience that. I think that's true to a certain extent. I also think that when you look at the movies of the '90s, um, the movies that were coming out in our coming of age, the movies uh, that Hollywood is making were kind of coming of age as well in parallel to us. There was a feeling of clinging on to a certain nostalgia that the 80s had been awash in, but also staring headlong into a very uncertain future with the 21st century banging on the door and the technology that was suddenly available to these movies along with it. And so you had a lot of films, you know, whether it was the new look Star Wars or something like The Fifth Element or Terminator 2, um, and certainly, you know, for me, most formatively, Jurassic Park that were doing sort of both things at once, Jurassic Park going 65 million years in one direction, while also um, pointing headlong into a future that was only then becoming possible for what movies could do. And so I just thought that that was a really interesting thing to dig into um, and to, to use that as sort of a entryway into the decade as a whole, which is, oh, well, you know, feels very recent, will always feel like 10 years ago to so many of us, but right. um, is also rich. And it's also, it's just, it's like so many of those filmmakers are still relevant today, are still working today. Those films are still sort of opening up in front of our eyes, as was the case with our number one pick. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it was this really liminal spot between feeling like ancient history and something that was still sort of present. But the other thing that, that I got from this, and, and you wrote, wrote a, a beautiful and very personal essay about the Jurassic Park of it all, and, and that there was this confluence of the, the sort of apex of the blockbuster era happening in tandem with other kinds of Hollywood filmmaking and other kinds of global cinema that was unique to the 90s. And a lot of times when people romanticize an era or a decade of movie making, they talk about the 70s. And it's like there's the 70s and there was everything else. And certainly... There's a lot of great movies made in the 70s. But what this list reminded me of was that we haven't necessarily been looking at the 90s in those same terms because there was so many there were so many different layers to mm. the kind of filmmaking that was happening all at once that we needed some some distance to go through it. So what I found fascinating when I was editing it and what I appreciated about it was that 
you you feel that kind of not just cultural diversity but but like narrative diversity going through it you know the fact that you start with ghost dog and then we get movies like the apple or compensation which i have to admit i haven't seen I, but i yeah, read about i, I wanted to see no, it i mean uh, robert daniels one of our free writers who really uh carried the torch for that one and brought it to my attention i was really glad to, to include it yeah, but and 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 you know, it's I don't I would say very few people who read through this list have seen all of these films, and so it really does force you to think about well, were we looking in the right places in the '90s, or were we all looking in different kinds of places, and what does the benefit of hindsight give us that, that allows us to redefine the decade? So let's talk about that number one choice. Uh, it is Eyes Wide Shut. Um, full disclosure, I was on vacation when I think this decision was finalized. So I, I was very surprised <laughs> You're when I heard, um, I liked that movie quite a bit. I rewatched it. I think last year on Christmas, it is a Christmas movie just as much as die hard yeah. for the record, but, um, and more so than die hard in certain ways, but, but how, how, how did this happen? <laughs> well, you know, we are not sight and sound. We don't pretend to be. This was not a purely mathematical decision. A lot of the ballots that I received, I mean, this is, this part is actually true of sight and sound. The ballots were not always weighted, but um, there was a lot of trying to get a bigger picture and not just going by the raw numbers. Because I, I think that in a case like this that may not have uh, resulted in such interesting results, you know, these are not meant to be objectively correct. It is just sort of a portrait or a lens into a period of time. Um, and Eyes Wide Shut was one of the only films that was represented on almost everybody's ballot that, that was submitted. Um, and there was just a sense of, I mean, it was very high on my palate as well. Um, and uh, it was, yeah, it was just a sense that, um, you know, beyond the general support of it, which is the, the most obvious answer to your question, uh, why I felt it was appropriate as a number one pick, um, you know, beyond the, uh, the sort of reclamation element of it all. And this movie that was sort of semi-derided at the time is like so many of Kubrick's movies has really taken its time to unfold and find its, its, you know, level of acclaim, um, was just what it represents as, um, you know, you're talking about romanticization and, and I think something that was, I was on my mind when we were making this whole project was not to over romanticize this period of time that, is very easy to romanticize. I mean, it's right before 9-11. I mean, there were so many terrible things in the 90s. There were wars and, um, you know, there, there were laws in America that were making things so much more miserable for so many groups of people. But uh, it, I think the movies, the fetishization of 1999 in particular makes it easy to romanticize. Um, and here is a decidedly unromantic uh, movie that I think really understands this sort of psychic uh, machinations of how it felt to be living at the turn of the century um, for these people who were sort of, and for a world and a country um, that was sort of in this liminal space between dreams and reality and trying to figure out uh, if it was possible to extricate the two. And then ultimately, if it wasn't, how to live with that and you know, going through the story about the rich people, not just the ultra rich you see in City Pollock's character, but these affluent sort of social climber hangers on like Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's characters who are sort of have one step in that dream world and one step in reality, one foot in that dream world and one foot in reality um, and how mesmerically that movie 
sort of churns that into an experience, into something that I found myself constantly returning to time and again, since I first very uncomfortably saw it sandwiched between my parents when I was 15 years old. Oh my God. Um, so, choice was that? Was it, did you insist on watching that? Yeah, I, I really, uh, wow. I was like, we are going, I will get kicked out of the theater if I go by myself. Um, so I am going to take the hit. I know this is going to be awkward, but I am not, not seeing Eyes Wide Shut on opening night. See, for and, me, that uh, was, um, I think that movie was Beavis and Butthead do America. So, you know, that's another masterpiece. Um, I was definitely tracking that. And I remember when AI came out, how exciting it was to have this, like, you know, Spielberg being the most prominent commercial director and Kubrick having just died and feeling like there was this sort of like passing of the torch or something like that. And the fact that this was Kubrick's last movie is, is kind of radical too. the idea that somebody could culminate their career with something that is so adventurous in terms of what it's trying to say. I mean, he has never made a more a more cryptic movie. And that includes the ending of 2001. Yeah, I mean, abstraction in that movie, but it but you can kind of make sense out of it. And this one, I feel like there are so many layers that you have to unwrap. And also it's it is such a subversive act to make a studio film with these two huge stars. And then like the last scene is they're like standing in like a shopping mall, basically. Right. It's like, yeah, the center the, of consumerism. the fake equivalent of F.A.O. Schwartz. In yeah. London. And the last thing they say is, what do we do now? We're going to fuck. Like it's yeah. just, just something magical from like a cinematic standpoint about how, you know, ambitious it is to do that. And, and yeah. I, I appreciate that, that putting it number one allows you to think about it in, in just, you know, how those terms and it's, it's I, I do think, you know, to your point, I do think this is the kind of movie that uh, this is sort of, you know, a theme with, with Kubrick. You are going to see sort of room 237 like uh, examinations of going forward, close readings and so on. Um, there is something mythic about uh, a filmmaker who is a quintessential icon of the 20th century, a 20th century film, working towards making this movie for the almost the full entirety of his adult life. Um, you know, since he discovered the Arthur Schnitzler novel that it was based upon, he was sort of dead set on making it right. um, and, and actively trying to do so for about 30 years uh, and finishing up, you know, and then dying uh, right before the turn of the 21st, 21st century. There is a really sort of narratively satisfying uh, yeah. aspect to it. Very badass, honestly. Very I mean, badass. <laughs> yeah. That's a guy who lived for his art too. I mean, it's like Kubrick certainly did not need to be anywhere near as prolific as any of his contemporaries. And to some degree, you can include Spielberg in that. I mean, like Spielberg clearly struggles in public with this kind of like art versus commerce sort of identity. And, and Kubrick never gave into the commerce part of it. Like every movie he was threading that line where his, his brand was itself the thing that sold, sold was able to be sold to audiences. I also think the movies worth is interesting to look at now in a 2022 context because of the top gun of it all. And what a few people have said, including, um, Ethan Hawke made this point in the interview I did a few weeks ago that like if Tom Cruise had like won an Oscar for Magnolia or something, we might have gotten more wild performances from him and as opposed to him going in the, you know, the ultimate kind of tentpole movie star direction. And this performance is so wild. I mean, I would put it even even more wild than Magnolia, I would say, an ambition. Yeah, it's interesting because you can see the same intensity and level of determination in his performance as this very restrained and pent up doctor in Eyes Wide Shut, as you can see in any of the Mission Possible movies or in Top Gun Maverick. It's just channeled in a, in a more implosive direction. Um, but the fact that he, at the height of his fame, 
took two full years off, not off. I mean, he was working to the bone, but away from being the megastar Tom Cruise and just to being in these hermetic sets in England and making this, you know, soul pulverizing movie, uh, you know, that was really plunging into the the fissures of his own failing marriage. Um, it's pretty remarkable. What I do think speaks to his conviction. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, in, in a way, I do think it points forward to the Tom Cruise that we see today, but it was definitely the last time that he was using that energy on this kind of film. Yeah. In any case, I, I still probably would have put Pulp Fiction in there or something, <laughs> but I like that this is a talking point and I, and I, and I hope a lot of people are debating these things um, and, and that, ta- that Titanic was still in the top 10, uh, whereas I'm, I'm sure there are many 90s lists you could find out there where it takes number one is an interesting choice, too, because it's hard to ignore the, the kind of the, the cultural significance, the, the uh, kind of industrial value of a big blockbuster like Titanic being pulled off on the scale it was by a guy like James Cameron. But I don't know. I mean, there are parts of that movie that I find really cheesy and stuff. Oh, so. man, it's I, I will not lie. <laughs> it will be an open an open fact before long. But both Eyes Wide Shut and Titanic were on my sight and sound 10 best films of all time ballots. Wow. So, um, you know, the, 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 I think so much of this is experiential. I mean, like mm-hmm. both of these movies are movies that I have rewatched endlessly for more than 20 years now mm-hmm. um, that there's just been some pull of eternal return uh, to them uh, and Titanic in particular being a cable staple where I think it's been playing on some cable channel or another uh, at literally all times since uh, since 2000 um, or 1999 or whatever really made its way to cable in the first place. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been sort of baked into into the deepest recesses of my brain. Um, yeah. But it's a good cross section, these movies. And I think um, even some of the triumphs uh, reflect reasons not to overly romanticize the decade. Another thing we focused on with this package, you know, whether looking at um, the explosive punk energy of the new queer cinema that was being made in the 90s or, uh, you know, Spike Lee, Bill Duke and these luminaries of black cinema around the time um, of sort of the obstacles they faced, the things that they were able to accomplish in spite of them um, and the paths that they paved. But it wasn't all you know, an, an un, unadorned celebration of uh, the decade. There were a lot of things that we wanted to sort of explore um, the, the sort of the, the underbelly of uh, what was provoking some of the movies that have stayed with us at the time. All right. Well, we could spend a lot more time going on about, you know, what didn't make the cut at all. Certainly you can do some Twitter searches and stuff like that and find a lot of people making their own suggestions. But it's a great project. I highly recommend people check it out and and figure out where your blind spots are, because it's, it's a really neat guide. It's a nice viewing guide in that respect that I think will send people in some cool directions. But let's talk about the fall movie season. So uh, we haven't had a chance to do that yet as things really started to take shape. And I'd love to know, um, as you look at this purely from, you know, your role as as chief film critic, um, you know, what you're excited about, because this week we got the New York Film Festival spotlight section announced and it adds a few more films to the festival. We already know that White Noise is opening, the movies like Tar, which is also going to Venice and Telluride are going to be there. So there's a few things that have been sort of tipped for, you know, once you get that New York Film Festival slot, you know, something's going on there in terms of quality, hopefully. But now we have the spotlight section. So that gives us an even more complete picture in terms of the the kind of 
fall titles that seem like they, they really are picking up momentum all throughout the circuit. So what stands out to you from this most recent announcement about um, the films you're excited to see? Well, I mean, you named a lot of the films that, that are really uh, that I'm really rabid about that are not part of this most recent announcement. Um, although one of them is, I mean, one of them will not be making its uh, world premiere uh, at the New York Film Festival, but Sarah Polly's new movie, I think, you know, anything that that starts with those words would be reason for celebration and cause for excitement. But women That's talking, women talking. Uh, the women talking. Yeah, uh, it seems particularly exciting. Um, you know, it is it is a bunch of Amish women talking in a bar for a hundred uh, in a barn, rather not a bar for one hundred and four minutes. I That's what I but uh, very different film. But but um, I my, my sense is that uh, the movie is going to feel a lot more expansive in terms of its uh, tone and soul and, and what's going on with it. There's uh, so much good, good buzz around this movie. Yeah. And I'm almost worried about just even talking about it because then some people have told me, you know, it's kind of quiet and you don't want to overhype, you know, it's not like it's some sort of, you know, epic on a grand scale that's going to change the language of cinema. And that's always a problem with award season. But this is the one that I uniformly have just heard so much positive stuff about and we can expect yeah. to see it making a big splash, not only uh, at TIFF, but probably at, at Telluride as well, though. Of course, One we don't think. have that lineup. Yeah, um, but e easy enough to deduce from the premier statuses and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. um, but that's, I mean, I think that's that's going to be really exciting. Sarah Pauly really doesn't miss as far as I'm concerned. Um, at, but, you know, there's some other things that were also tipped for uh, the New York Film Festival. They're not huge surprises, but are satisfying to see all the same, such as Maria Schrader's She Said, um, mm. which is a drama with Zoe Kazan and Carrie Mulligan, who are longtime friends and collaborators, um, who yeah. are, uh, you know, playing Jody Cantor and Megan Twohey in, uh, in the story about breaking the Harvey Weinstein story and sort of igniting the Me Too movement. And I think it's always interesting when you have such a intricate dramatization of such recent history um, with so much baggage around Around it, but I think you know, based simply on the caliber of the talent involved, I think um, you know, never too early for a spotlight level examination yeah. of something that continues to sort of reverberate in our culture. And Anne sort of broke the news about that one being included a couple of weeks back, but of course, it makes perfect sense. It's a New York story, and the more that I take meetings with people talking about award season and stuff, the more I realize how far removed we are from that story. That it was you know, 2016 as crazy as it sounds, was six years ago. <laughs> so six years, like Harvey Weinstein's in jail. The Me Too movement has gone through its own kind of mini phases of evolution and so forth. There, there are people who do not remember this story now or weren't didn't get all the details. And so while it might feel very fresh and familiar, it does feel on some level like there's a there's like a historical moment where this is being sort of solidified into the public narrative through this movie. So hopefully it rises to the. Task. Yeah. And I, I suspect the movie will in a way, not dissimilar from spotlight again, I'm sure, you know, comparisons will be inevitable, but uh, I, I would imagine the movie also keys into the act of journalism um, and sort of what it entails, what it requires, uh, particularly of women who are covering a story that may resonate with them personally, um, a story that is so sensitive uh, culturally, I think, um, it'll probably, one would hope, extend even beyond just sort of the me too of it all um, into, uh, yeah, something something even richer. But I think that'll be exciting. And then there's Lars von Trier uh, on, the, on the opposite end of the spectrum in some respects, uh, who is, uh, you know, we now know as, as Parkinson's um, and is doing his own 
sort of Twin Peaks, the return uh, of, of finishing up a um, something that he had done two parts of previously on television, yeah. the kingdom with the kingdom exodus. And uh, again, comparisons to Twin Peaks, the return will probably be as inevitable as comparisons to spotlight are for, she said, but um, it, it will be an interesting exhumation of the kingdom one and two. Uh, and just to tie, just to tie things back into our nineties thing, um, one thing that's going up tomorrow on Friday, the 19th on our site is a series of guest lists uh, from filmmakers and actors we like of their 10 favorite films from the 90s. And it's been interesting to see uh, The Kingdom pop up on mm. like Ari Aster's list and some other people's lists um, as sort of a buried gem of, uh, of that time. And it'll be interesting to see you know how this yeah. it's fascinating also it's like <laughs> you know that we have all these conversations now about you know tv is a new film or tv is, is more prominent in our culture or it's all porous now or whatever and the reality is twas ever thus we just go through different periods in which the industry you know kind of serves up a certain narrative that that we tend to reiterate you know people like lynch and and von trier they were making stuff in both media well ahead of the industry saying like this is where you should be and the fact that he can keep going with the kingdom at this phase of his life you know whether or not that's because a lot more people are working in tv i don't know but it but it is kind of cool because it does feel almost like on in that kubrick eyes wide shut sort of way like perhaps this is his masterpiece and he just never got to finish it. I mean, I certainly felt that way about Twin Peaks, The Return. Yeah, I mean, there's also the feeling that, you know, the house that Jack built ends with a descent into hell that felt as much of a final statement as anything you would see from an artist like Lars von Trier. And now with this presumably final chapter of this larger project, uh, given his medical condition, I mean, there's every reason to assume whether correctly or not that this might be the last thing that he makes, um, of, at least of you know the scale. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what sort of bow this ties on his uh, singular career, to say the least. So then we have Bones and All, which uh, Timothy Chalamet is a cannibal in a road trip movie directed by Luca Guadagnino. It's like pretty good sales pitch. Um, I've heard, you know, at first I, I think there were, there were sort of like a, a muted sense of expectation around this one. I mean, it's, it's really hard to tell what it is. It's been a while since we had a call me by your name type of Luca movie, but obviously he's reteaming with, with Timothy Chalamet. So, you know, that's promising, but now it's in spotlight and I, I've been hearing some other things about it. It feels like, I don't know, I think whether or not it's an Oscar movie is one thing, but it does feel like it could be a very commercial movie yeah i mean i think it's oscar prospects are dim based on what i've heard but it's not a knock against the quality of the movie so much as um the kind of uh register in which it's working um the luca is an interesting case because it's again it's that tv thing like he he has been um you know some of his post call me by your name work didn't really hit with people i was a big fan of suspiria but i was basically on an island by myself with that mm-hmm. um and then he did we are who we are on hbo which i thought was terrific um, but did sort of take him out of maybe that like sort of A-list, everything he's doing is met with hushed Oscar re- spots being reserved in advance sort of reverence. Um, and that could be liberating in a way for him to make something a little bit grimier, a little bit um, more off the beaten path. Uh, what it, what commercial means for Luca Guadagnino in terms of, you know, the sort of box office success awaiting this, who knows? I think if this movie did anywhere close to, 15 or $20 million all told, that would probably be a big success. 
Um, but uh, that would probably, that'd be a lot more than Suspiria. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but, but it stars think, a guy yeah. who is now shooting Dune 2 in Europe and, and has that kind of like, st- you know, he's not Tom Cruise, but he's, he's may, may be sort of like the equivalent of what Tom Cruise can be as a movie star today. Yeah. But I think the the fear, my concern would be if I were one of the backers of this movie is that social media excitement and the memification and just the general, you know, cultural awareness is not really translated to box office dollars necessarily. You need some extra muscle behind it. And I'm, I personally, you know, hope with all my heart that this movie has that um, and that it is becomes enough of a cultural uh, point of interest to um, get beyond the initial wave of enthusiasm. I'm sure our review of the movie out of Venice will be very popular on IndieWire and there'll be a lot of chatter, um, but whether or not that will translate to people caring once the movie comes out, uh, time will tell, but I think yep. Timmy Chalamet not, you know, not proven that he can open one of these things by himself. And even if he can't, I don't know if that 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 uh, bears ill or you know is a bad omen for like no. uh, his Wonka movie. I think you know the studio movies are a different beast. But we'll yeah, see. no, totally. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm curious about the Wonka movie. I'm intrigued by the fact that it even exists. So I mean, Paul King coming off of Paddington too. I mean, he gets a he gets a sure. free pass of interest anyway. So why not? Um, I will be there one way or the other. Yeah. So very quickly, I just want to touch on some of the TIFF docs. Um, it, you know, some of this stuff, we really have to see it to figure out um, how it's going to resonate. And the the documentary conversation is sort of an insular one that evolves with time. And then eventually you have like a, a clear sense of what the field looks like for the fall. But the opening TIFF doc film, Louis Armstrong, Black and Blue, which is uh, uh, this sort of reassessment of Louis Armstrong that uses both the uh, his own recordings that he sort of did where he was sort of like keeping like a diary of sorts while he was recording and rare footage of his performances, but also modern day voices like Wynton Masalas kind of wrestling with his complex legacy. You know, was he just sort of performing for a white audience or did his talent kind of go beyond that? I think sounds quite promising. And then we have the Laura Poitras film, which we already know is a Telluride and New York Film Festival. New York Film Festival is a centerpiece screening. I believe Uh, it's the only film that is going to be at Telluride, Venice, Toronto and New York. Which is a pretty magical quartet. I mean, I, I remember the last time it was a. Did, did anything do that last year? Now I can't even remember. It's hard it's, to keep. It's it hard to say. But I remember when when Marriage Story did it. You know, everyone yeah. was like, "Oh, well, Marriage Story's got that spot," and it worked out pretty well for that movie. So that's uh, that's a good sign. And I and I hear really great stuff about them. The way it kind of deals with both Nan Golden as a photographer and as an activist who takes on the Sackler family is very exciting in, in theory. So so we'll yeah. see about that. And then, of course, Warner Herzog, who turns 80 a week before Toronto, uh, has this weird thing called Theater of the Mind, where he looks at kind of uh, the philosophy of brain science or something like that. I mean, Herzog, to me, is like it's such a easy experience to settle into. It's He's almost like he's not a filmmaker. He's just like a sensibility. And like, Mm. sometimes that manifests as a movie. I mean, haven't you, you've seen a lot of the late period stuff, right? Yeah. um, You know, it's been, yeah, he's been, uh, I think leaning into that sort of sensibility of it all and and not in a way that I hold against him. I think he's just sort of using that as a, 
a way of leveraging, you know, movies to get made based on some ideas he wants to explore in recent years where his films have been less uh, of events. I have heard uh, rumblings that uh, this latest one is the most sort of focused and compelling thing that he's made in, in a long while. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, Werner Herzog's films, I think inevitably at this stage of his life are going to trend towards death. I think someone who is, you know, I think very conscious of mortality and the the sort of cruelty of, of life. It's going to, there are a few filmmakers, you know, I think I'm more fascinated to see sort of age and reckon with what that means in, no matter how sort of tacitly in the subject of the films that they make, while at the same time being sort of afraid of watching the filmmakers themselves uh, become, you know, elderly, because Werner Herzog is such a a symbol of uh, sort of dauntless vitality and, uh, um, you know, feeling like he will live forever. So uh, I think every more and more his films, whatever many he's got left in him, are going to be cause for for celebration. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see how that one turns out. In the meantime, there's so much other stuff worth looking at, both in the Toronto lineup and in the other festival lineups that we have that probably won't get that kind of Oscar buzz kind of stamp of approval early on, either because it doesn't have the marketing infrastructure, it doesn't have distribution. It's just a lower profile kind of film. And I think having you on Screen Talk is a good opportunity to kind of take a step back from the awards conversation in the sense that there are, as you say, a lot of films in Toronto and there's a lot of films at all of these festivals and many of them might be quite good and still just not necessarily get that kind of bump. So let's look at the zero buzz Oscar movies and, and which ones we want to add buzz to that we're actually excited about. So why don't you walk us through the films that you've been looking at that are pretty clearly not the kinds of movies that, you know, get most pundits talking at this time of year, but, but have you excited nonetheless? Yeah. I mean, I would love to live in a world where a new movie by Joanna Hogg starring Tilda Swinton would be disqualified from this conversation on account of Oscar buzz being too much of a foregone conclusion. But I think uh, we do not live in that world. I think there there will uh, be maybe some greater interest in The Eternal Daughter, um, which finds Joanna Hogg again pairing with Tilda Swinton, who was in uh, The Souvenir and The Souvenir Part Two um, for a ghost story. Uh, set on a foggy island somewhere. I mean, I'm already so in the tank for every part of that description. Um, but uh, I, I would imagine that is not going to wind up being much of an Oscar player, no matter how wonderful Tilda Swinton is in it. Joanna Hogg just does not make those kind of movies, but I cannot wait to see it. A24 is going to put it out in the United States. I do not know when, if it's going to be this fall or maybe one of their plays for next spring. But um, that is definitely one that's on my radar um, I am also always interested in Romain Gavras, uh, particularly because his last film, uh, which premiered at Cannes in Director's Fortnite, I believe in 2019, The World Is Yours, uh, is just like such a riot and is, is such a confident, fun, smartly um, sociological heist movie uh, that it ended up on Netflix and I don't think a lot of people knew about it. There wasn't a big fuss, but it's it's such a great movie that anything he's doing, particularly uh, working with Laj Lee as a screenwriter, you know, Laj Lee of Les Miserables from a few years ago. Um, and that's Athena is the name of this movie. And it's about um, a social unrest in a uh, in a community in France and what happens when the police get involved after a 
13 year old boy is uh, caught on videotape being killed by police. Um, and that I'm sure the, the muscularity of the filmmaking will most likely be intense as will every other part of that movie. Um, so that's on my radar, that's from Venice. Uh, or going to be in Venice. And just one other title to shout out is uh, Gianfranco Rosi, uh, who is a documentary filmmaker who made Fire at Sea in Eterno most recently. What yeah, I find yeah. so interesting about his new movie, In Viaggio, is that, uh, and I don't think you could say this about any other movie ever made, it only exists because the Pope uh, was such a fan of Fire at Sea that he wrote a fan letter to Gianfranco Rossi and said, like, hey, I would love for you to uh, make a documentary about me or with me or come on a trip with me um, and film it. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, so, I, you know, I can't claim to have a particular special interest in the Pope and all of his Pope doings. But <laughs> the idea of the Pope personally being so animated about a filmmaker and the kind of work that he's doing and wanting to be in that orbit is interesting to me. Oh, come and, on. Didn't you see two popes? This guy's the best. <laughs> Changed my so life. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, you know, the real pope has a lot to live up to after that movie, just in terms of his you know, basic charisma. Um, but uh, I think that could be an interesting one. It is a lot. Uh, you know, Jane Franco Rossi, who is used to working with uh, subjects who are, you know, less sacrosanct and uh, to say the least it's going to be an interesting match between subject and filmmaker so i'm keen on that one yeah absolutely john francarossi is, is an incredible filmmaker who deserves to be appreciated on the level of like a great auteur in a way he really puts himself in the line of fire a lot of times but he goes in such unexpected directions in terms of how he puts it all together could get oscar um, buzz who knows but yeah you never know <laughs> yeah. what even is oscar buzz yeah we make it. We we can make it happen. But let's see the movie first. Mm -hmm. I uh, I've got a couple that I'll go through uh, kind of quickly because there's a few of them here that I think are they're all very different that I feel are worth singling out. One is a TIFF movie called Sanctuary from uh, this director Zachary Wegon, who uh, is was a film critic for a while, and a bunch of us used to know him. And then he made this movie called Heart Machine that premiered at South by Southwest. That was a very cool lo-fi kind of uh relationship story involving like a sort of catfish type of scenario in a way and now he's got this movie where christopher abbott is like this heir to a hotel empire and uh he's in this hotel room with a dominatrix played by margaret qualley and uh they have this argument about their relationship and that's literally all I know about it, but it just sounds fascinating. Um, it sounds like a really cool kind of two-hander, and I, just, I expect it goes in some unexpected directions as well. Um, not a TIFF buzz movie necessarily, but certainly an acquisitions title and one that hopefully gets some some kind of life as a result of the profile that festival will give it. And then there's an epi uh, episodic project that's also an acquisition title called Self-Portrait as a Coffee Pot which is by the South African artist, William Kentridge. So people in the art world will know who William Kentridge is. He's not really known as a filmmaker, but Jocelyn Barnes, who's this great producer who runs Danny Glover's company, produced it. And uh, it's, I believe it's a nine part series and Tip is showing like three episodes. And uh, basically it's like, a, it's it's the only pandemic project that they have uh, where he's like in his studio and he's talking with himself and he's using like in-camera effects to, to make it look like he's sitting across the table having a conversation with himself. Uh, but it's an essay film and he's, he's musing about all these different things, including, you know, apartheid and colonialism and all these other kinds of, you know, 
themes that, that he can just kind of like run with. Uh, the official description says it's inspired in part by Charlie Chaplin, Ziga Vertov, and the innovative wit of early cinema. So, okay. you know, that's a pretty good selling point for some of us. So we'll see how that turns out. So there's that one. And then I also wanted to give a shout out to No Bears, which is a new Jafar Panahi film, which is at um, Venice, uh, TIFF, and New York. And of course, Jafar Panahi is still in jail for ridiculous charges from years ago that were always ridiculous. And he was arrested a couple months or a couple weeks back when he went to go check up on Mohammed Rasulov, who was also arrested for ridiculous reasons uh, involving a, a statement he posted against uh, police brutality. And um, so obviously that's going to be a talking point. But this film, which is about these two different kinds of love stories that happen they're sort of shown in, in at the same time is it sounds fascinating and mainly because panahi is has just continued to be an unpredictable filmmaker i mean i, I haven't loved every single one of his sort of late period uh life under house arrest gambles but ever since this is not a film i've, I've just been there for panahi you know he was a great filmmaker beforehand but there's just nobody else under those circumstances who keeps innovating with film form yeah, I mean, the act, the fact that these movies even exist is such a beautiful thing to begin with um, and that they continue to be so playful and and sobering. Uh, but, you know, this is not a film is a very high bar uh, for this kind of experiment to clear. And, you know, Closed Curtain uh, may not have you know lived up to it uh, for everybody, although I thought it was interesting. But like, I like parts of it. Taxi is amazing. And Taxi, yeah, yes. Thank like, you for reminding me. Yeah, like anything so cool. he's uh, making these days, especially under the circumstances, I think demands to be seen and reckoned with at the very least. The next film and, and last one I wanted to give a shout out to Pearl, which is Ty West's new film. Certainly it's 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 something to be reckoned with uh, because he made this wild slasher movie X earlier this year and then on the same set made a really gonzo prequel starring Mia Goth and sort of set in the past. She plays an old woman and a young woman in X. And here she plays like the young version of the old woman. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's like this technicolor thing where you're kind of inside the mind of a psychotic woman who wants to be a movie star in World War One. And I mean, Ty West is a very exacting filmmaker um, just from like, in terms of like the horror genre. I, there's very few people working exclusively in that register who uh, are continually worth kind of following on these journeys, even, you know, if like you take some weird twists here and there. But but there's just something about this movie that in uh, the kind of the insanity of it uh, that gets me really excited. So we'll see. I mean, it's a very, very cool move uh, when you finish premiering your new movie at South by Southwest. You know, it's a, all the fervor of a, of a uh, big premiere screening at the Paramount to be like, by the way, the sequel's already in the can. Um, so, you know, for the audacity alone, I still haven't even seen X myself. Uh, so I, I will not be our, uh, you know, chief pearl correspondent but i am excited to catching up with with both of them although being in that situation you could watch pearl and then watch x because from a timeline mm -hmm. standpoint that kind of makes sense so you know you got you got options which is always a nice thing <laughs> these days well david I, i'm sure you have approximately 54 screenings to run off to so i'm gonna let you go but i'll find you in the madness and uh, yeah. uh, we'll see each good other there. gasping for oxygen and tell you ride and, and thanks again for for filling in this week it's good to see you my pleasure. Bye. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.